Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Wired Senior Associate Editor Ariel Pardes. Hello! And Wired Senior Writer Lauren Good. Hello! On today's show, we're going to be talking about robocars. Not the cars with driver assistance software, like a Tesla or Cadillac, which you might be familiar with, but specifically the next wave of automated vehicles that are going to be rolling out onto our streets in fleets. Think of things like robo-taxis, robo-delivery vehicles, robo-UPS trucks. And Wired's Alex Davies is going to be joining us to talk all about this. He's going to tell us about the players in this space, the autonomous tech inside of these vehicles, and how our cities are going to have to adapt once these are on the streets. Uh, That's going to be a great conversation. Can't wait for it. Why don't we get started with a quick roundup of the news. Ariel, you go first. Well, if you're in the market for a new phone, like I am, I dropped mine, it has a huge crack in it. Uh I have some exciting news. You might be able to control your next phone without touching it. And no, this isn't the next iteration of Elon Musk's brain-computer interface project. I am talking about Google, which announced this week that the Pixel 4, which will come out later this fall, will include some brand new gesture technology. And the way this works is pretty cool. Google has spent the past five years building this chip that it calls Soli, that it says can detect movements of less than a millimeter and capture information on the position of your hand at 3,000 times a second. So this should be much more precise and much more reactive than any of the other gesture controls we've seen on the market, which mostly use cameras. So if you've used like a DJI drone or maybe like gesture controls to control a smart home hub, these things work, but they're like a little clumsy because they're using 3D camera technology. This uses radar, which Google says is gonna be a lot more sophisticated. The Pixel 4 is also going to have a facial unlock feature, so you'll be able to stare at your phone to unlock it and then wave your hands around to change a song or silence a phone call or something like that. Now, obviously the Pixel 4 hasn't been released yet, so we can't know for sure how well this works until it comes out in the fall, but it feels like the beginning of a totally new chapter of human-computer interaction, where we're going to see more and more consumer tech with gesture controls, we're gonna be touching our screens less, No more smudges on the top of your phone screen. It's exciting. What do you think, Lauren? I think this is really exciting because I really do think this represents the next era of how we could potentially interact with these things. And we've seen slowly but surely these very tiny incremental changes that have happened with our personal devices, whether it's Apple Watch or um, your smartphone over the past few years that have started to bring in more intuitive interactions. I think of things like the fact that you can shush your Android phone or the fact that you can just sort of place your palm quickly on the top of your Apple Watch and it goes dark. And even in the days of like Motorola phones from a few years ago, it got really good at detecting light and motion and things like that to show you things in the screen when you wanted to see it versus when it was just lying there, you know, with a blank or dark screen. So this to me is like, We're moving into this era where the technology is potentially getting as refined and good enough as it needs to be. So we don't even need to touch these things. They just can, you know, sort of know what we want to do based on our gestures. But I do think that with new with each new interaction like that, you have to wonder about the behavior change. I personally don't know a lot of people right now who have said, oh, I wish I could just wave my hand mm-hmm. and swipe an app or change the song or, or do something like that. Um, or or like wave my hand and scroll through the page that I'm reading. I know Samsung has tried this before with like, eye, you know, recognizing your eye movement and trying to scroll the page. Um, it's It feels to me a little bit like technologists putting forth a solution that hasn't yet been proven as a problem. 
but I do think it sounds really cool. But isn't this what people said when the touchscreens first came out? Like oh, absolutely. Buttons, buttons on your phone work perfectly well, but touchscreens are just cooler. Right, <laughs> right. And you, I do think about things, um, I spend a lot of time in a car, so like I think about things like when you're driving, how much easier would it be just to wave your hand to switch a song as opposed to touching the phone or touching whatever it might be. So um, so yeah, I, th- I think this sounds really cool. And I also think it's a good thing, people will probably disagree with me, that Google is slowly leaking out all this information. So we, as reporters, have time to process it and do reporting <laughs> on it before the phone actually launches instead of you know having some big smartphone event and everybody going, oh my god, Project Soli, gesture control technology, what does it mean? You know, and having to like figure it out in 45 <laughs> minutes. So uh, yeah, I- I'm all for these controlled <laughs> leaks. All right, let's talk quickly about the stuff that's powering these kinds of devices, uh, or at least some of them. Intel's newest chips are here officially. The chip giant has been talking up its 10th generation core processor since early this year, but now the sales embargo has officially lifted on the chip, which means that PC makers are going to start talking more about this processor as they reveal new laptops coming this fall. So this new chip is the 10th generation of core processors. It's codenamed Ice Lake. There will be 11 new versions of this chip, ranging from the very low-end dual-core i3 to a quad-core i7, but they're all built on this new 10 nanometer Sunny Cove architecture. And this is something that Intel had been working on for years and was delayed, but now it's here. So you can expect better graphics performance, new support for AI and neural engine features, and support for Wi-Fi 6 and Thunderbolt 3 from these new chips. Uh, now, so far, four laptops have been confirmed to, you know, they're going to be running on this new Intel 10th uh, gen chip, the Acer Swift 5, the Dell XPS 13, HP Envy 13, and Lenovo S940. Lenovo's naming convention has never really improved. I don't know why. <laughs> um, and we can certainly expect to see more laptops revealed at IFA Berlin in early September. Now, I think the big question is always, what about Apple? Yeah, what about Apple? Are they working on their own 10 nanometer process or they have a seven nan so I, I think like it's important to note that the way that these things go is that the when you hear blah 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 nanometer that's just like the the size of the chip getting smaller and smaller and smaller so they're packing more information into basically the same size chip yes. or packing more information onto an even smaller chip that's correct um some people will argue with the statement that it has to do with the size because what you're really talking about is transistor density yes. but that density could increase because you have shrunk the size of the silicon or it could have increased because you managed to pack more transistors in so you can't solely go off of size but it basically right. you know it has to do with how many processes this piece of silicon can do in like a minute amount of time and so um so yeah there are seven nanometer chips out there now in mobile there are 10 nanometer chips out there now samsung's been making them for a while Intel has finally caught up. Now, Bloomberg did report earlier this year that by 2020, Apple is planning on using its own custom chips in Macs. So it's possible that when we see the next MacBooks and the MacBook Airs come out uh, in 2020, they will have their own homegrown chip inside. It is possible, except keep in mind that last October, Apple announced the brand new sort of not new, you know, revived MacBook Air. Mm-hmm. And that happened at an event in Brooklyn at the end of October. And um, 
And that was actually running on an Intel 8th generation chip because even though 9th was in the works, it was a timing thing. Mm. So it's quite possible that if Apple has anything up its sleeve this fall in PC land, that it would be running on Intel's 10th gen chip because they still have a relationship with Intel at this point. But it's also quite possible that the next next MacBooks we see or Macs we see are running on a new Apple chip. All right. Well, do you want to hear about bank security? Mm. Yes. Yes. I know you're excited. Question mark? One of the biggest ever breaches of a financial institution was revealed this week. The FBI and the bank Capital One disclosed on Monday that 106 million credit card applications were illegally obtained by an outside hacker. Each of the credit card applications contained gobs of personal information about everybody who had applied for a Capital One credit card, including their name, address, phone number, and date of birth. Along with all that info, the hacker also grabbed 140,000 social security numbers and 80,000 bank account numbers, along with some transaction data. The circumstances around the hack itself are very bizarre. The alleged hacker, Seattle resident Paige Thompson, exploited a misconfigured firewall to access a repository of Capital One data stored in the cloud and then posted all of that personal information to her GitHub account. An anonymous tipster spotted it on GitHub and then alerted Capital One. Thompson allegedly took pains to conceal her identity using Tor and working through secure VPN, but then she posted about the hack on GitHub anyway, and she also talked about the hack in Slack messages and Twitter DMs. Yeesh. The hack occurred about four months ago in April, and Capital One discovered it just two weeks ago, and then they notified the FBI, and within 10 days, they had made an arrest. This feels like uh, how not to complete a hack 101. Right. <laughs> like step one, do not post about it on your public facing internet accounts. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, the, the, the number one rule of um, hacking a bank is do not talk about hacking a bank. Right. Yeah, seriously. Um, <laughs> no, I think the, the, the most interesting thing about this though is um, you know how much of this falls back on consumers. Our colleague Lily Hay Newman reported on this for Wired, and she pointed out that Capital One is you know, estimating that they'll have to pay upwards of $150 million to deal with this. Um, but that's actually like not that much money compared to the consumers who have to deal with having their information out there. There are you know hundreds of thousands of people who now have their social security numbers and bank account information compromised, um, and there doesn't seem to be a great solution for how to deal with that. Have you have you read anything or seen any reporting on what people are supposed to do in light of this hack? No, I mean it's all a little too early right now. Um, I think probably. What you can do is just sort of keep an eye on those websites where you can look and see if your information is out there and see if your information has been compromised because like chances are it probably already has and maybe it just did again. But if you have applied for a Capital One credit card pretty much ever, uh, then you should definitely be checking those those libraries on online. Yeah, and maybe like it's time to close your bank account, put all your money into Libra, <laughs> move to New Zealand. I hear the good money is in eggs, actually. Put your money in eggs. <laughs> That's where the future is. The future is in eggs. You heard it here first. Uh, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will uh, have Alex Davies magically appear at the table and he will tell us all about robocars. Privately owned cars that drive themselves with no help at all from humans, like those promised by Tesla and seemingly every other automaker, are still many years off. But we might see other applications of autonomous vehicles showing up much sooner, especially in controlled environments like college campuses, gated communities, and large-scale farming operations. 
After that, the next likely step is putting robot cars on city streets in the forms of taxis, shuttles, and delivery vehicles. Alex Davies is a writer and editor who covers transportation here at Wired, and he's joining us today to talk about the robo-vehicles of our robo-future. Alex, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. Always a pleasure to be here. Um, I'd like to ask you to start out by just giving us an overview of the current state of autonomous driving technology in private vehicles versus the state of the same technology in shared use fleet vehicles like shuttles and things like that. Sure. I think it's good to start off with the blanket statement that autonomous vehicles do not exist. (laughs) That is not a thing yet. There is a lot of development going on. There's no such thing as a car that can actually drive itself competently in a wide variety of situations, which I think is a fair way to define autonomous vehicle. So what you're seeing in privately owned cars, um, mostly right now luxury sedans and SUVs, although it'll start to trickle down over the next couple of years, is systems similar to Tesla autopilot, things that can pick up lane lines, can detect other vehicles, mostly in front of you using radars and cameras, and that can basically, on highway, which is the simplest driving situation, keep you in your lane, keep you from smashing into the car in front of you. That's pretty widespread and becoming more so. On the other hand, what you're seeing from companies like Waymo, which started off as Google's self-driving car program, and Argo, which works with Ford, and Cruise, which works with GM, and what Uber's doing, is they're all pursuing the idea of a fully autonomous vehicle that can operate in cities as a sort of taxi system. What we've seen so far is a lot of struggle of those companies actually bringing something to market. Waymo originally said, hey, we're gonna have something, a commercial service running by the end of 2018. And then like early December, 2018, they're like, here's our service. It still has human drivers in it. And no, not just anyone can sign up. And everyone went, okay. Sure, like we guess you met your deadline. And it was only in one market, too. And right? only in one market, right. yeah. Only in, in a few cities mm-hmm. of the Phoenix, Arizona suburbs, with, where they've been testing for years, which is probably the simplest place in the country they could have picked to do their development. Cruise, uh, which works with GM and also has a lot of investment from SoftBank and also from Honda, says that it wants to launch its service in San Francisco. They, for a couple of years, have been saying, we're going to have something by the end of 2019 until they came out last week or the week before and said, "Uh, yeah, still San Francisco, not so much 2019. And when I said, "Okay, what's the new deadline? They said, we do not have one. And I think you're (laughs) going to see a lot more of that is that companies that haven't really put down dates um, aren't going to. And those that have are pretty likely to start walking them back because this is really hard. Yeah, so those are some people who are working on autonomous vehicles for transporting people, but then there's been this explosion of autonomous vehicles for transporting other things, like the the things you bought at Walmart, or the things you bought on Amazon, or food. Um, What's up with all of these types of vehicles that are sort of trying to mimic uh, couriers, or bicycle messengers, or other types of uh, transportation? So let me answer that by taking a quick step back. I want to go back a couple of years, like 2014, 15, 16, which was really the peak of the hype around autonomous vehicles. When you had these big companies pursuing this technology and then all of these startups being created, and I think the best example of that will take a company called Drive AI. You had all of these startups 
that were saying, hey, we too want to get into the autonomous vehicle game. We can also create a fully autonomous car. Drive AI was started by a small group of scientists out of Stanford who were really big on deep learning. And they said that they can do this. And they never really made all that much progress. They had a pilot service running in, um, in Frisco in Texas. And it just really never amounted to all of that much. And I think that what you're seeing from new companies today is that they don't want to bite off as large a chunk of the market as Drive AI tried to. If anyone can do the truly self-driving car in a city like San Francisco, it's going to be a company like Waymo or like Cruz. These companies have well more than a thousand employees. They have billions and billions of dollars in investment. And it seems more and more likely that that's what it's going to take to actually pull off that kind of technology in the near term. So what you're seeing from all these new startups that are coming up, because it still is a rich investment space, is that they're going after really, really narrow market segments. They're saying that instead of self-driving car blanket statement, we're going to do delivery in the bike lane, or we're going to run this one shuttle route that's three miles back and forth that involves one right turn. Because left turns, unprotected left turns, like still a problem, still a real <laughs> problem, even for the most advanced companies, um, because driving is really hard. Those are dangerous turns, those are tricky turns. You have to keep track of a lot of things happening at one time. So the evolution of the space is that the people who are entering it now aren't going for that brass ring. They're going for the thing that they think they can pick off and deliver on. And so deliveries make sense there because the, the market is there. Everyone wants stuff delivered. People hate leaving their house, it turns out. Um, and you're seeing um, one new company that I talked to recently called Refraction that is run by a couple of University of Michigan scientists. They've been one of them, this guy Matt Johnson Robertson, um, was working on the f robots for the first DARPA Grand Challenge in 2004 as an undergrad. He has been doing robots this whole time. And he started a new company, and he said it's really depressing that the only robot actively in his life is a Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond the ones he's actually working on. Roomba is the original autonomous vehicle. <laughs> Absolutely. like Because that Roomba picked a set space where they're like, this is something a robot can do. And the like there's a clear market for it. And the risks of messing up are relatively low. And that's why Johnson Robertson and his company Refraction are saying, we're making this little, slightly dopey-looking thing that's going to run in the bike lane because they say, like, speeds are lower there, they know how to work there, and they're going to do short-distance restaurant deliveries. And I think you're going to see a lot more examples like that. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with more hard questions for you, Alex. So Alex, earlier you talked about how companies have been trying to get to this fully autonomous vehicle level of driving. And that seems like it's still a pipe dream. And so they're start starting with these smaller fleets in more controlled environments, but there are still challenges that exist even in these environments. Talk about that. So the whole game of autonomous driving technology is picking out the environment where you can control enough of the variables or just eliminate enough of the variables that you can do a reasonable job of delivering a service. And the problem with robots in the real world is that the real world is complete madness. 
um, just driving around a city, the things that humans are really good at, which is just perceiving their surroundings and understanding what other human beings are likely to do, is just really difficult. And I think that today, roboticists are fully aware of that. They've the good roboticists, I'm sure, have been aware of it for a long time. But I think that maybe when self-driving cars were really at peak hype, people forgot about just how hard this problem is. And my favorite distillation of a problem, there's a, a roboticist named Hans Moravec, who is at Stanford and CMU, like in the 60s, 70s, early heady days of artificial intelligence. And he was working on robots and he was watching his colleagues create chess programs that could that could defeat humans. And he was trying to make a robot just cross cross a room, a cluttered room. And this robot would go one meter, stop, look around, think for 15 minutes, and then move another meter. And it still smacked into something 25% of the time. And and the reason he said this was so hard, so much harder than making a robot play chess, it's not that he was a worst roboticist, it's that human beings and other creatures are the product of millions of years of evolution selecting for the ability to understand our surroundings and how to move safely through them. And what it, it's so deeply ingrained in us that it seems easy it's really hard and it's really hard to just make a robot that can do it. So so it sounds like what you're saying is that the same challenges still exist, but there of course is a difference in terms of the risk of harm from uh, an Uber car, you know, barreling down the road autonomously versus a cart that is delivering your burrito. Right. And as an example of that, to go back to Refraction, the company that wants to move stuff in the bike lane, Matt, the founder, said to me, I mean, he's a relatively big guy. He's got a vehicle that's about 100 pounds, maybe like 150 fully loaded. He said it smacked into him a couple of times early on in testing. He specified early on in testing. (laughs) Um, And he said, you know, it kind of threw him off balance, but he was okay. And I think that you want to, it's likely that we'll see more robots that look like that, that operate at slower speeds in more controlled environments so that if something does go wrong, the risk of someone getting hurt drops. I am I am extremely curious about how a robot operates in a bike lane. So am I. <laughs> I think that it's understandable that you'd want to pick an environment like that where speeds are slower, where you don't have to deal quite as much with cars, uh, and you can work with a smaller vehicle. I think that that's one thing where the social politics of robots <laughs> are gonna get really interesting because I've seen people yelling at people on Mm e-bikes in the bike lane or scooters and also cars are constantly in the bike lane no matter where you go. Um, The refraction people I think are aware of that. They're cyclists themselves, they're quick to point out. I, I don't know how it'll work. It's something I'm eager to check back into in a couple of months once they're a little further into development because I think, Mike, when I first floated the idea to you, you said, that thing's going to get you locked. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And I believe it. (laughs) So, Alex, at the top of the podcast, you emphasized the fact that autonomous vehicles are still quite a ways off, right? These things do not yet exist in a sort of real way. Um, And I'm just curious what you think is going to sort of pop up first 
in terms of becoming a fulfilled promise of the autonomous vehicle space? Is it these delivery robots? Is it vehicles? Is it something like long haul trucking where the environment is a little more predictable and it's just a car going like straight down a highway for many hours? What's the like first exciting thing that you can imagine on the horizon? It'll be definitely in the delivery space. I think what you're seeing is companies, there's a company called Neuro that's got a ton of funding and they've got this little toaster looking vehicle. It's about half the size of a sedan and they just drive around neighborhood streets and they do grocery deliveries. And I think that that's the sort of thing that's going to happen first for a few reasons. One, that technology is probably relatively achievable. It's it's easier, especially if you can control the neighborhoods and and the routes that you're in. You can avoid all left turns, for example, because as long as the groceries don't really care, right? Someone in that car might be annoyed because their Uber trip is taking that much longer. So I think that lowers the bar a little bit for what they need to accomplish. And regulation-wise, it's probably a little bit easier just because those vehicles will be operating at a local level. So all you need to do is convince one municipality that your robots are okay, as opposed to long-haul trucking, where the technology is also quite attainable, but probably a little bit harder because trucks are big and scary, and taking a human being out of one or even out from the driver's seat but in the cab is scary and will take regulators a little while to warm up to it. What do you think the long-term goal of most of these companies are? Is it that they want to more effectively or efficiently run their businesses just delivering goods directly to consumers and that's how they make their money? Or are they looking to map the world and use that data for other things and possibly use customer data in certain ways? I think that really depends on which company you're talking about. And an interesting thing about the autonomous space is that so many different types of companies are coming in. I think a company like Waymo, which is part of Alphabet, which is uh, Google's parent company, might be a lot more interested in consumer data of its passengers than actually in making money off of a taxi-like system. That to me makes a lot of sense. GM and Ford want to get into the space because it's a way to stay relevant in an era when people are buying fewer cars and that this is the way they want to get around. I think a company like Amazon just wants to be able to move its stuff more efficiently. And so ultimately, for a lot of these smaller companies coming in, they want to be suppliers of a sort. They want to be the new trucking companies where for a giant like Walmart, they just say, hey, we make this part of your business that much more efficient. Well, Alex, thanks for coming on the show and sitting with us. Thanks for having me. Are you going to uh, are you going to stick around for recommendations? I will. Awesome. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and get you to recommend something. All right, Alex, uh, the uh, visitors go first in this league. So tell us what's your recommendation? MLB TV. <laughs> Solid. Yeah. Uh, I'm a baseball fan. I grew up in New York. I'm a big New York Mets fan, much to my lifetime regret. And all um, of you cannot see this, but Alex is wearing orange today. Bright I, orange. I also really like the color orange. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so that part of the equation at least works out. Not so much um, the constant losing and nonsense on the part of the New York Mets. But for all that, I just enjoy watching the game of baseball, and I can't watch the Mets games on the West Coast except for MLB TV. 
I really dislike paying for streaming services. I use my brother's Netflix account. I use my parents' (laughs) TV subscription for everything I can sign into. The idea of paying for separate things drives me nuts. This is the one service, and I think it's about a hundred bucks for the year. It's like one twenty. Okay, um, fine. <laughs> it's fine because one, it works well. I can watch on my phone. I can watch on my computer. I can watch on my TV through my Roku. You can watch games whenever you want, which is great because, especially since I'm on the West Coast, games are usually done by the time I get home. So I start a game and like third or fourth inning, fast forward through commercials, and instead of a three-hour baseball game, it's a two-hour baseball game without any of the terrible commercials. The service works well. I really I really dig it. It's the one thing that I don't hesitate to pay for every year. Yeah, same here. And as an American League fan, it brings the length of the game down to like a manageable four and a half hours. There you go. So we've got a National League fan and an American League fan here. Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Oh, we will in October. Great. I'm going to have to fight Mike's designated fighter. <laughs> Snack fight, what is your recommendation? Oh, boy. Okay, so I want to recommend something really weird. It's a dance performance. It's called Inferno, and it is a performance um, sort of created by two artists named Luis Philippe Demers and Bill Vorn. Um So I experienced this dance performance. It's unlike any other dance performance I've experienced because I was a performer uh, in the dance performance. These guys have built robot exoskeletons that sort of hang from the ceiling. There are 12 of them. And the audience goes in, and then 12 members of the audience actually get inside of the robot exoskeleton. And when the show starts, the robot exoskeleton starts moving your upper body. So it's sort of like a like a backpack that runs down the arms, if you can imagine that. So you're wearing this, like, 40-pound backpack and the... And the um, the uh, the robotic parts like the hydraulics and the servos and everything run down your arms and they they end at your hands. So the whole time you're standing there, you can move the bottom half of your body, but the upper half of your body is being jerked around by these robotic parts. Uh, it's really interesting. It's supposed to be uh, a uh, an immersive representation of hell, which seems pretty accurate, I can say, after after participating in it. Um, it's also why it's called Inferno. But it's really interesting because it takes the it, it blurs the line between audience and participant, and it really blurs the line of control between like the actual performer and the artist behind the curtain pulling the strings. Um, the two guys who run it stand at the back of the stage, and they control the music, and it's this like hard industrial techno score that's really kind of disturbing and it's about like 100 110 beats per minute so it's kind of easy to dance to while you're wearing a 40 pound backpack but um basically they start the show and then they start moving you and it's all choreographed so some people you know are synced up and some people are sort of soloists uh and you just are in the suit and everybody's watching you and laughing at you and taking pictures and it's really incredible um it's touring the world currently, which is why I'm recommending it. So if you see Inferno coming to your town, it's usually going to show up as part of like a music festival or some sort of technology festival uh, or some larger cultural event like a you know Lollapalooza type thing. If Inferno comes to your town, find out how to sign up to participate in it because just watching it is cool, but like being inside the robot and up there on stage dancing while you're not really dancing, you're just kind of getting moved around is a very, very surreal experience. Highly recommended to everybody. Inferno. 
And you saw it at the Gray Matter Fest, Gray Area Festival. Gray Area Festival. It's a, yes. um, a, uh, a Gray Area is a nonprofit foundation here in San Francisco that studies the you know immersive technologies in music and art and design. And um, they put on this festival, and Inferno was like the highlight of the of the show for me. It was really dope. Very and you cool. didn't know you could do splits before this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it was it was a little weird to uh, some of the arm movements were not you know my moves but I took credit for them. Ariel, what's your recommendation? Um, okay, so do you ever take a photo and think to yourself like my smartphone camera is just too good? <laughs> no. Well, I, I was on vacation last week. I was in Mexico City and I took all these amazing photos with my amazing iPhone camera. And this girl on the trip with me had brought along a disposable camera, and I thought that is so cool. I can't wait to see what her photos look like. But of course, I did not have the incredible foresight to bring along a disposable camera. I only had my dumb iPhone. So I downloaded this app called the Huji Photo app, which puts a disposable camera on your phone. It's very cool. It actually, you, you open it up and it turns your screen into what it would look like if you're holding up a disposable camera. And then you look through the very, very tiny viewfinder in the corner. <laughs> and then you take a photo and uh, you have to like go through this interface on the app that says like going to the developer lab or something to like develop your photos. And then um, they look like they were taken in 1998. It's and cool. do you get a limited number? No, I think this is like an unlimited disposable camera situation. Okay. And also you don't really have to wait for them to develop, which is convenient if you want to like, I don't know, post them on Instagram. It's very cool. It's fun. Is it is it a free app or does it cost a little bit of money or what? I believe it's free. Let me check really quick before I... <laughs> it is free. <laughs> um, Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is uh, if you are looking to stream something and not think too hard, I'm a fan of Working Moms on Netflix. Oh, so good. It's so good. It's a Canadian series. I think it originally ran on the CBC. Now it's streamed on Netflix. Season two is now available. It's created and written by Katherine Reitman, who stars as the character Kate on the show. Um, every episode starts off with a group of uh, a group of of working moms as the title suggests uh basically in, in like a group therapy session and it's like inappropriate and hilarious and i think the character development is really good and i actually have watched the entire season at this point and there are some twists and turns um some, there are some characters who redeem themselves and others who crash and burn and it's uh leaves you hanging at the end and um yeah, I, I don't know. I just really, I really enjoy it. The, there are a few series, I think, that I watch at this point in time that feel sort of um, like leisurely in that way because I'm usually watching heavier things. And this is leisurely, but also still very smart and funny. And the fact that it's Canadian, too, means that their sense of humor is a little bit less uptight, perhaps, than some other series. <laughs> Uh, a friend of mine is a big fan, and she refers to it as sex in the city and the babies. <laughs> right. But like in Toronto, and um, everyone seems like maybe slightly less self-obsessed than like watching an American reality series or something like that. Amazing. Well, that's a good recommendation. I'm going to get in tune with my mom's side and watch it yeah. this weekend. No, I mean, I know men who like it, too, for what it's worth. Non-working moms who also like it. I also have another very quick and free recommendation, which is uh, Street View on Google Maps and Look Around on Apple Maps, which will be coming out with iOS 13. It's available as a public beta now, but officially launches in the fall. Um, 
very cool tools if you are apartment hunting. I had never really used those features super liberally before. And now it's, it's you know, one thing to have sort of a top level view or a topography view of maps when you're looking at places. But now it's like you can actually zoom down streets like the Apple look around feature is very cool. Um, so anyway, check it out if you get a chance. Awesome. Well, good job, everyone. This is a good show. Thanks again, Alex, for coming on. Thank you. Good yeah. job. Yeah. Um, Thank you. We'll bring you back on maybe like when your book comes out. Yeah, sometime next year, the origin story of the self-driving car to be published by Simon & Schuster. Very cool. And um, make sure you append the uh, wired affiliate code to the end of that when you buy it, uh, just so we get a little bit of extra money. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. Um, Anyway, if you enjoyed listening to this show, please leave us a review, uh, either at Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you write reviews these days. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Lauren, what is uh, your Twitter handle? At Lauren Good with an E. Alex? I'm at A Davies 47. Oh, that's a good one. Arielle? I'm at Pardesoteric. I am at Snackfight, S-N-A-C-K-F-I-G-H-T. And you can also talk to all of us at Gadget Lab, which is the Twitter feed that we use to handle feedback for this show and to tell you about all of our stories and just to interact with the public as we do. Um, we also want to thank our, our engineers and producers, Boone Ashworth and Peter R. Cooney, who have been helping us make the show sound better and better every week. Thanks, guys. You're the best. And we will be back next week. Hi everyone, Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.